0: Today's scripture is taken from Romans chapter 1, verse 18-32. to 32. I'm reading from the ESV version. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, for images resembling mortal men, and birds, and animals, and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonouring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonourable passions, They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them.
1: Thanks, Sarah, for reading God's word to us. Uh, Let me pray for us in our time together. Before we look at the text together, let's pray together. Dear Father, we thank you so much that you are a God who speaks. Indeed, you are a God who even warns. Father, we pray that you would uh, send your spirit upon us, that you would convict us of sin, of righteousness, of judgment, Father, we pray that you humble our hearts before you so that we would come to you, recognize our need, and lay down and, and trust in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. The topic of sin is not a popular one. Uh, even churches are avoiding it. You know, I came across this interview uh, with a pastor in the States of a prominent church and this is what he said about why he doesn't talk about sin anymore. You know, most people are beaten down enough by life. They already feel guilty enough. So, so he doesn't talk about sin anymore. And indeed, one of the reasons why we avoid the topic of sin is because we associate it with uh, being self-righteous, with being hypocritical, with being judgmental, as well as with being legalistic. You know, and, and it's true, we, we can talk about sin in the wrong ways. We can easily focus on the speck in someone else's eye that we fail to notice the log that obscures our vision, the, the log that is in our own eye. So, so it's true, we can talk about sin in wrong ways. You know, but, but does this mean that we should cast aside the doctrine of sin, like a piece of old clothing that no longer sparks joy? I don't think so. You know, I put it to us that without a biblical understanding of sin, uh, we, we cannot make sense of what's wrong with the world. You know, and, and we know that there's something wrong with the world because we, we see it every, every week, we see it every day of our lives. You know, we look around and we see we see brokenness everywhere. You know, we experience that brokenness ourselves in, in our own lives. We experience that brokenness in the lives of our friends, in the lives of our family members. You know, deep down inside, we, we know in our hearts that something's not right. Something's not right. You know, th- this world seems off. You know? So off 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 center. We we know things are not what they're supposed to be. You know, on on September 14th, 2001, just a few days after the 9-11 terror attacks, uh, Billy Graham, he he preached a sermon in Washington, D.C. at the National Cathedral, and this this is a quote from his sermon. He said, We are reminded of the reality of evil. We're reminded of the reality of evil. You know, that's something that we try to put, you know, we try to sort of push aside in our minds, the, the thought of evil, sin. But, but every time something bad happens, I think we're reminded again of how real evil and sin are. You know, when, when we visit a doctor, when we, when we go to the doctor, what we want from the doctor uh, is an honest, an accurate evaluation of our health, right? You know, we, we don't go there to, to listen to kind of nice words from the doctor. We, we want him to tell us truthfully what's wrong with us, even if the truth is hard to take. Unless we know what's wrong with us, we won't know that we need help. Unless we know what's wrong with us, we won't know what remedy we need from the doctor. Indeed, as Jesus himself said, those who are well have no need for a doctor, but those who are sick. You know, they are the ones who would seek help. Now, the theme of Romans, as we've been going through, is the gospel, as summarized in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. You know, it says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Paul says, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now these two verses tell us very clearly that the gospel is God's power to save. But why do we need to be saved? What what are we being saved from? So in order to understand what Paul is saying about the gospel, we, we, we need to understand why we need to be saved and, and what is it that we are being saved from? And this section in Romans that we're about to start on, you know, one, chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, uh, Paul is giving us the reason for why we need the gospel you know, and what the gospel saves us from. And, and today we're just looking at a subsection in this longer section. So this section shows us why we need the gospel. And so there's two reasons today and those are the two main points of the sermon today. We need the gospel because, one, we face God's judgment. You now, if you look at verse 18, it starts with the word for, right? So it, it, it reminds us to look before, you know, to the verses before to, to, to understand why the word for is there in verse 18. So the word for connects us, connects verse 18 to verses 16 and 17. So this is how the logic goes, right? Paul says the gospel is the power of God for, for salvation why? Verse 18 tells us, because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. So, so that's the reason. We need to be saved because we face God's judgment. Paul refers to God's judgment as his wrath. You know, that, that's not a word we often use in everyday conversation, wrath. You know, now among the reasons why people find Christianity offensive, this is probably one of them. You know, mention wrath, you know, it seems like a very old-fashioned, uh, archaic term, wrath. Right? We, we mention it and people picture a God who loses his temper, a God who smites people in his anger. Right? That, that's, the, that's the picture of God we associate when we hear the word wrath. Now, who will want to believe in a God like that? A God who kind of loses it? Is, is this what, is this how we understand the wrath of God. I want to introduce us to this man called Marcian. He was born in AD 85 and he lived uh, to AD 160. He lived just towards the end of the New Testament era, when, at around, the times when, around the time when our New Testament was being written. So Marcian, you know, he, he was the son of a bishop and he liked the parts of the Bible that spoke of Jesus' love. Right? So, so he enjoyed hearing about the mercy of, the compassion, and the love of Jesus. What he didn't enjoy as much was the parts of the Bible that spoke of God's judgment. So, so what did Marcion do? He felt that he could improve Christianity, make Christianity more palatable to the masses by uh, editing his own Bible version. So, so Marcion took the Bible, he discarded the whole Old Testament because God seems very angry in the Old Testament, so he discarded the whole Old Testament, he excluded large portions of the New Testament as well because every time he came across things like holiness and judgment, okay, he didn't like that, so he kind of excluded that. So in the end, Marcion was left with a pretty short Bible, just you know, a shortened version of Luke's Gospel and just selected parts of Paul's letters. That's the Bible that Marcion read and believed in. It's not surprising that the early church rejected Marcion's teachings as heresy. But I want us to think about this. The the, the ideas that Marcion propagated, I think they still linger on. Uh, Maybe some of us have those ideas as well. Marcion's ideas are still with us today. Uh, Just several years ago, two hymn books uh, excluded the song In Christ Alone. You You all know the song In Christ Alone? Right, we all love the song, right? We sing the song with a lot of gusto. It's such a, it a wonderful song that speaks of the gospel right, in Christ alone. But two hymn books decided to exclude the song. Why? Because there was this line in the song that said, To on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Now, the, the editors of those two hymn books felt like, oh, you, you can't talk about that. I'm sorry, you can't talk about the wrath of God being satisfied. So they asked the Getty's, would you be willing to include your song if you remove that line? And the Gettys said, well, we can't because this gets to the heart of the gospel message. So the Gettys refused and the two hymn books said, then we can't publish your song in our hymn books. Richard Niebuhr described such theology as, a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through a Christ without a cross. Now, God's wrath is not like our anger. You know, when, when we get angry, you know, we, we lose it, right? We, we often get irrational and uncontrolled in our anger. You know, our anger is often driven by self-centeredness, by pride, by hatred, by malice, by desire for revenge, a desire to show that our opinions are right. So we get angry. We, we attack people who disagree with us. God's wrath is not like our anger. In, in, in fact god's wrath is an expression of his goodness God's wrath is an expression of who he is that he is a holy god and 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 because God is good, he cannot be indifferent about evil I, I think we understand that you know if if we you know if we're outside in, in public for example and we, we we see a parent with with a with a kid who's kind of this kid is just completely uncontrolled right completely kind of disobedient disrespectful what, what you know just imagine a really unruly kid and if the parent just looks at the kid like ah, so cute <laughs> ah, it's okay you know he's just kind of expressing himself it's fine you know i mean what would we think about the parent you, know, you can't be indifferent to the rebellion of your child right? you need to take your child in hand and and help your child to listen you can't be indifferent. To, to be indifferent would not make you a good parent, would not, would not make you a nice parent. It would make you irresponsible. And in the same way, if God were indifferent to sin, that would not make God nicer. I, I, I put it to us that if God were indifferent to sin, it would make God pretty frightening. Imagine a God who doesn't right all the wrongs in the world. Imagine a God who doesn't care if people are running off the reservation doing whatever they want. I think a God like that would be pretty frightening, especially if if He's also all-powerful. If God did not care about evil, we would not be able to trust Him to right the wrongs that we experience. Such a God, friends, would no longer be good. So why is sin so sinful in God's sight? Why, why, why is sin such a problem to God that He has to judge it, you know, with His wrath? And you know, how many of you have been watching Marie Kondo? <laughs> you know, tidying up on Netflix, uh, decluttering your life. You know, Chinese New Year is coming; it's a very good time to watch uh, Marie Kondo. <laughs> uh, you know, wh- one of the things that Marie Kondo does is, you know, you kind of organize your life, right? You, throw out things that no longer spark joy, and you, you kind of learn how to fold clothing really nicely, how to only have 30 books. Uh, 30, sorry, sorry, not 30, 30 books. Uh, so imagine that you decide to Marie Kondo your life, right? So, so you kind of spend a lot of time, you spend weekends kind of tidying up your rooms and your house, folding your clothing vertically so you can see them very nicely in your wardrobe, not stacking, Stacking's bad. So you do all that, You spend you spend hours and days just doing a, the whole Marie Kondo of your house, and everything is really, really tidy. So when you go into your house, you feel at peace. Right? You feel, wow, this, I, I feel joy. <laughs> I feel joy coming from my clothing. Right? I, feel, I feel that this is right, right? right. You feel really at ease and happy in your house. Then you have your young cousins, come, or you, your young nephews and nieces come in. They, they run through your house, and they deconstruct your Marie Kondoing. Your 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 clothing's in a mess. Everything is messed up. New things are introduced. It doesn't look good. Right? They they mess up your house basically. How do you feel? It's like I've I've spent all my time and effort making sure things are really nice and orderly, and and these nephews and nieces of mine come in during Chinese New Year and they mess everything up. My house is a mess. It's no longer peaceful. It's no it no longer gives me joy. Right? I feel frustrated. Right? Friends, if, if we can get upset because our house is made messy, imagine how God views this broken world. Right? He, he's, he's created this world good. We've come into this world, like, like those unruly nephews and nieces, and we've turned things upside down. That's what sin has done to this world. It's taken what, what is good in God's sight, you know, as we read in Genesis 1, it is very good and it, it's turned it on its head. It's messed up everything. It it sin breaks uh, you know you know this, this idea of shalom. You know the Bible talks about this this idea of shalom which refers to a state of perfect peace a state of uncorrupted joy, a state of pure delight. So God created the world and it was shalom. It it, it was really, really good. And and sin has messed things up. Now, one one Christian writer wrote, God hates sin not, not just because it violates His law, but more substantively because sin violates shalom. It breaks the peace. It interferes with the way things are supposed to be. Now this is why God says uh, this is why Paul says in Romans, "God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Sin is fundamentally Godless. Right? It's ungodliness. It's Godless. It has no regard for God, His character or all that he stands for. His, His order. Of, that He created, sin has no regard for that. Sin is unrighteous because it, it opposes God's righteous word and His ways. So, if, if, you know, for example, if we know God is love, we oppose God if we are unloving, right? Because we do what's opposite of His character. If we, if we know God is true, we oppose God when we tell lies. If we know God is generous, we oppose God by being selfish, self centered, greedy. If we know God is faithful, we oppose God when we break our promises by being faithless. Friends, that's, that's what it means to sin. It, it is God less. You know, when, when we drive faster than the speed limit on the road, right? We, yes, we. We break the law, but when but we drive faster than the speed limit, we, we, we don't do it because we are personally opposing someone, right? Unless you're, Ian, unless you're Ian and Sherry tells you not to drive so fast, then that's a different matter. But, but generally speaking, we, we, we break the law, but we're not, it's not personal. But, but friends, sin isn't like that. When, when we sin against God, it, it's personal rebellion against our Maker. It's, it's personal rebellion against someone who made us to know Him and to love Him. So we face God's judgment. Uh, so but but what, is the, what is the root of our sin? Can we dig a bit deeper and, and see where, where does our, you know, what, what, what's the root cause of, of our rebellion against God? Which brings us to number two. Second reason for why we need the gospel. Number two, we have not worshipped the true God. If you look at verse 21 of our text, It reveals the heart of our sin. This really is the essence of sin. Although they knew God, they did not honour Him as God or give thanks to Him. So as we've been saying, sin first and foremost is a failure to worship the true God. God made us to be worshippers. God created us in His image to know Him, to enjoy Him, Forever to, to be in a loving relationship with him as his people. Now, friends, this is what it means to be truly human. Right? To be, to be truly human, to, to be to live out the fullness of our personhood is to really know our creator, the one who made us in his image. Now, now some might object to this, say, Oh, I, I don't know God. You know, how do I know if he even exists? How can I be expected to worship a God I don't know? I don't, even, I don't believe He exists. So Paul's reply in verses 18 to 20 is that you know, our, our problem is not that we don't know. Our, our problem is that we don't want. Right? It's not that we don't know. It's that we don't want. Why? Because Paul's, Paul says in verses 18 to 20, God has revealed Himself to mankind. What, what can be known about God is plain to us. Because God has shown it to us, verse 19. Ever since God made the world, His creation displays His eternal power. His creation displays His divine nature. We we see from creation that God is good, that He's wise, that He's powerful. Indeed, Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. We're meant to look at the planets and realize that God is there that he made all these things. You know, Dr. Francis Collins, uh, a physician geneticist in the States, he, he's the director of the National Institutes of Health in the US. He's the one who also led the Human Genome Project some years ago. This is what he says. So, so Dr. Francis Collins used to be an atheist, but then he became a Christian. Uh, this is what he says about the scientific pursuit. He says, I have found that there is a wonderful harmony in the complementary truths of science and faith. The God of the Bible is also the God of the genome. God can be found in the cathedral or in the laboratory. By investigating God's majestic and awesome creation, science can actually be a means of worship. And I think Dr. Collins is right. He's expressing the truths of Psalm 19. Friends, for those of us who are scientists, it's a wonderful opportunity to to grow in your worship of God as you explore the wonders of His creation. So, so God has revealed Himself to us in His creation. And and verse 20 says, Because we have this knowledge from creation, we have no excuse. Friends, we, we can't claim that we don't know God. Then, why don't we want to worship Him? Why don't we want to worship God? verse 18 says, it's because we suppress the truth. Right? We, 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 know we have the knowledge of God but we keep it under wraps. We, we hold on to it because we know that if we believe it, the implications for our lives are radical. So, so we decide to suppress the truth instead. We refuse to listen to our knowledge of God because we don't want to submit to Him. We want to live life our way. And this desire for autonomy, this desire to be free from God, led to humanity's sin in the first place. You know, in Genesis 3, the woman believed the serpent instead of God. The the woman decided to make up her own mind to do whatever she thought was best for her. So she saw the tree, it was good, it was delight to her eyes. The tree satisfied her desire to be wise, so she decided to take the fruit and eat and also giving it to her husband, and he also willingly ate. So friends, that, that's, that's what sin is, right? It, it's us deciding to do what we think is best for ourselves, apart from God. You know, some of us have teenagers, right? And... Uh, you know, teenagers can be a bit know-it-all. <laughs> uh, they, so teenagers often reject the authority of their parents. Why? Because they think they know it all, right? They, they rebel against their parents' authority. Uh, they, they're a bit like smart Alex, right? They, I, you know, I know more than you, so I'm going to just kind of do my own thing. Friends, we are like teenagers. We, we've turned away from God's authority because we assume that we know it all. We assume that we know better. We, we claim to be wise, but Paul says we've actually become Fools! If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, then it is foolish to reject Him. And the language gets stronger, right? Verse 23 and 25, we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. We exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. You know, like the prodigal son in the parable, we've run away from God to pursue our own life, only to end up in the pigsty. And, and friends, this is the great tragedy of sin. Friends, friends, we, th- we, we think sin gives us pleasure. We, we think sin gives us what we want. But, but this is the tragic outcome of sin. Why? Because we were made in God's image. No, we, we were made to reflect the glory of God, to, to, to be in relationship with Him as His image bearers. It is, it's not too strong to say that we were made for glory. We were made for glory. But, but we've, we've traded that glory for false hopes, for lies. And we've bought into the lie that we're better off on our own, and we make gods for ourselves in our own image to reflect what we want, to reflect what we think, what we decide is best for ourselves. You know, some of you know the quote by C.S. Lewis. I think I've said it before, but it's worth listening to it again. Now, we are C.S. Lewis says we are half-hearted creatures. Uh, Can I have the next slide as well? We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. Friends, we we are far too easily pleased. I mean, you look at those pictures, what what would you like? To make mud pies in a slum? Or a nice holiday by the seaside? But friends, we, we worship the idols of success, of control, of comfort, of security, of power and influence. We worship the idol of prosperity, of pleasure, Now, our lives revolve around what we think will give us fulfillment and happiness. Things like our relationships, our experiences. We revolve our lives around the search for purpose and meaning as defined by us. We revolve our lives around our careers, building our reputation and status, being worried about our health, chasing after wealth, going for that extra degree, seeking educational accomplishments. Right? We, we revolve our lives around all these things. And where our treasure is, there will our hearts be also. The, the things we desire, the, the things we fear to lose, they become our idols. Right? So, so ask yourself today, what, what do you really want? What do you really want? And how is that desire kind of driving how you live? What, what do you fear to lose? What are you afraid of? The, the, the fear of losing that thing makes that thing an idol in your life. And these idols start controlling our lives. Uh, for example, a, a man wants respect. It seems like a... Uh, you know, a reasonable thing to want, but he wants it so much. He wants respect so much that he works longer and longer hours for a successful career, starts neglecting his relationships, his family, his children. Why? Because he believes that, res- that his career will gain him respect. Right? He-, he wants respect. He's afraid of losing respect. So he, he, he pushes himself, his life looks different because he really wants respect. Friends, we become what we worship. That's a biblical principle. We become what we worship. You worship God, you become more and more like Him. You worship idols, you become more and more like the idol that you worship. So is it, is, isn't it any surprise that we allow our idols to define us Right, they, they take the place of God in our hearts and they become our identity. Right? So, so we, de- we begin to find our identity in our idols, right? things like work, sex, uh, holidays. <laughs> right, but we, we define ourselves by what we have, by, by the, things of, the things that we do because these things have become our idols. We become what we worship. And Paul says in this passage that our idolatry, our falling short of the glory of God has consequences. And Paul states these consequences in three gave-them-up statements, right? In verse 24, 26, and 28. The three God-gave-them-up statements. And in, in saying these things, Paul says, God's wrath isn't just something that will happen in the future. God's wrath is already being revealed in the present. How is God revealing His wrath in the present? By giving them up. By giving them up. God is revealing His wrath now as He hands sinners over to their sin. If we willfully harden our hearts against God, He gives us up to what we want. So be careful what you ask for. God will give you what you want if you continue to harden your heart against Him. And in this case, God's judgment operates not by Him intervening, but God's judgment operates by Him not intervening in our lives. Friends, do we feel as if our plans for sin keep getting thwarted? Right? Do we feel as if what we want to do keeps getting frustrated? Now, Is there a secret, long-cherished sin in our lives that has been found out Friends, if if opportunities to sin have been taken away from you, friends, this is God's mercy in your life. This is God's mercy in our lives. He's he's intervening in our lives to keep us from continuing in sin. According to Romans 1, judgment means God doesn't intervene. He allows us to continue going further and further and further away from Him. Friends, if, if God is... Frustrating your plans to turn away from Him. God is keeping you from running away from Him. Friends, that is a mercy from God. Turn back to Him. Turn back to Him now. Don't don't take that for granted. So the first consequence of idolatry is sexual immorality. Verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonouring of their bodies among themselves. Friends, sex, sexual sin is all around us. Uh, I, I think some of us struggle with sexual sin as well. You know, sometimes, sometimes it, for those in pastoral ministry, it's very common that we, we meet with people who struggle with addictions, and pornography being one of them. There are people who struggle with having sex outside of marriage, you know, premarital sex, extramarital sex. People struggle with being faithful in their marriages. Friends, sexual sin is real. But oftentimes when we think about sexual sin, we we think it's just a matter of lust, right? Like physical lust. But what Paul tells us in this passage is that the the struggle with sexual sin goes deeper than just physical lust. It's a a problem of idolatry. We've actually stopped worshipping God and and we're worshipping something else, pleasure, some people engage in sexual sin because of control. So the different reasons, but, but it's because we've stopped worshipping God. That's why we begin to find our pleasure and our satisfaction in things apart from God, like pornography. We, 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 we want kind of relief and comfort from viewing images on a screen because we've stopped finding our comfort and our rest in God. Sexual sin is a deeper battle than with, just with physical lust. It has to do with what our hearts really worship. We indulge in sexual sin because we're no longer satisfied in God himself. Paul mentions another related consequence of idolatry in verses 26 and 27. It says, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for the women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Friends, these are really, really challenging verses, especially in the light of current debates about homosexuality. But I believe these verses are very plain, that just a very honest, careful, plain reading of the text tells us that all homosexual practices, whether by men or by women, are sinful in God's sight. And and the Bible calls such practices contrary to nature. we We need to understand what this means, right? Because we can misunderstand what this phrase means, contrary to nature. This doesn't mean, it does not mean what we think is natural. Right? So someone, someone might feel that, oh, being a homosexual is natural to me. Right? So it doesn't mean that. Or, or someone might feel that, oh, this, this is so unnatural, yuck. It doesn't mean that either. No, nature or unnatural means homosexuality goes against God's design for men and women. Why? Because God, God designed sex to be a gift, to be enjoyed in the context of marriage between one man and and one woman. So, so that's God's good design for creation. So to understand why homosexuality is wrong, we need to understand why marriage is so good in God's design, right? That, that's where we enjoy the good gift of sex between one man and one woman married in a covenant relationship. So, so these verses are very plain, that, ho- that the Bible forbids homosexual practice, that it is sinful in God's sight. It, in fact, Paul listed here as as an evidence that God is giving people over to their sinful desires when they indulge in these acts. But friends, we, we must be careful as we read these verses. While, while these verses clearly teach that homosexuality is a sin, they do not justify homophobia. What What's homophobia? It's the fear and loathing of homosexuals. Homophobia is also sin in God's sight because it doesn't love someone made in his image. So Paul doesn't highlight homosexuality because it is worse than other sins. Remember, in the context, Paul's point is to show that all sexual sin, both heterosexual as well as homosexual, is the result of idolatry the idolatry of which all of us are guilty. Friends, all these sins have a common root, and that's idolatry. In, in this sense, all sin is unnatural because it goes against God's intent for His creation. I want to speak a pastoral word to those of us, I know that those among us who may wrestle with same-sex attraction, or, or we may know friends who wrestle with same-sex attraction. And I, I found the advice by Dr. Christopher y- Yuan especially helpful. Dr. Y- Dr. Yuan, he authored this book, Out of a Far Country, uh, A gay Son Journey to God and a Broken Mother's Search for Hope. So, so if, if you're looking for a good book to read on this topic, I, I recommend this by Dr. Christopher Yuan. Uh, you know, as, as you can tell from the title, he, he, did, he, he was struggling with homosexual, homosexuality. And so this is his story, together with his mum. And he wrote these helpful words. We, we should help our same-sex attracted single friend know that their struggle with sin may feel unique, but it's not fundamentally different. The sin of same-sex sexual behaviour or same-sex sinful desires aren't the worst of all sins. Unfortunately, individuals often feel like and are treated like they're the worst of sinners. And to alleviate this, they must be reminded that they need the same grace as everyone else. And friends, that's so true because from this passage in Romans 1, all of us are in need of God's grace because all of us are idolaters. Friends, we we all wrestle with sinful desires, whether it's same-sex attraction or, or some other sinful desire. Why? Because sin has distorted our desires. But we don't have to be defined by our sinful desires. And as a church, we must be ready to bear one another's burdens and struggles with these sinful desires, whatever these desires may be. To be graced together means that we foster a culture of compassion, of of grace that makes it possible for us to be open and vulnerable with one another as we encourage one another towards repentance, towards faith in Christ, towards holiness as we put off our sinful desires and we put on Christ more and more. Friends, this is what it means for us to be a community of grace as we point one another to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. You know, our idolatry leads to sexual sin. It also results in a whole host of social, relational sins. You know, we, we see this from Paul's third gave-them-up statement in verses 28 to 32. Right? God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And then because our vertical relationship with God is broken, our horizontal relationships with one another gets broken as well. So what happens because of that? Paul says we, we covered. We covet what others have and are jealous of them. We say malicious things as we gossip and slander about others behind their backs. We fight with others to get what we want. We lie and and we break our promises. We, We are proud. We boast about ourselves. We disobey parents. We don't show mercy and compassion to those in need. In fact, more than that, we, we approve of the ways of the world, right? That's what Paul says at the end in verse 32. What, what, the world, what God calls wrong, we call right. You know, how do we do that? We, 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 we approve of earthly wisdom. Right? Things, things like look out for yourself. Do what's right in your own eyes. Look out for number one. Do what pleases you. And friends, that, that's how we give approval to what God says is sin. Friends, this, this is a difficult, difficult passage. You know, I spend the better part of our morning just talking about sin and, and this is, these are really, really difficult words. Why, why is this passage here in, in the Bible for us? Why is this here? You know, it, it's a difficult thing to, to, to listen to. It's like going to a doctor's appointment and just being told bad news. Right? <laughs> why is this here? Friends, God is wounding us in order to heal us. He convicts us of our sin so that we see our need for the gospel and look to no one else, not to ourselves. We look to Jesus Christ alone. And as we've just sung this morning, Jesus died on the cross, bearing God's wrath on himself so that our sins can be forgiven if we trust in him. And friends, the good news is that this Jesus, he rose from the dead so that we can receive The sin-defeating, death-defying, life-transforming power of His resurrection life. And God calls us to turn, to turn, to to repent, to to agree with Him, to, to see our own sinfulness and say, yes, God, you're right. This, Romans 1, this is me. This is me, God. I'm no longer hiding. I'm no longer giving excuses, but this is me. You're right. God, help. Help. Friends, this is why Romans 1 is in the Bible for us. This, friends, is is how we should be responding to these verses as we hear them. We are sinners who need saving. God is able to save us. Rosaria Butterfield was a tenured English professor at Syracuse University in New York. So Rosaria was a sceptic of all things Christianity. She was vehemently opposed to Christians. She was in a committed lesbian relationship and was happy as in her relationship. In fact, her her academic specialty was queer theory, a postmodern form of gay and lesbian studies. Then God intervened in Rosaria's life. She met a pastor, uh, her her neighbour actually, uh, Pastor Ken Smith and his wife, Floyd. So Pastor Ken and his wife, Floyd, she, they invited Rosaria over to their home just, just for regular meals, just, just to chat, just to talk. You know, they, they weren't pushy or anything. They, they patiently and lovingly answered her objections and questions. They, and they didn't just tell Rosaria about Jesus. They reflected His grace, mercy and compassion to her. How? simply by being hospitable, simply by opening up their home to her for meals. And Rosaria said, one of the things that struck her is that they never once invited me to church. <laughs> so, so it wasn't about, oh, just come to my church. It was, it was more about friendship. It was more about speaking love into Rosaria's life. So Jesus pursued Rosaria in love and Jesus found her with the power of the gospel. And this is how she describes her conversion. When the Lord entered my life, entered my world, I experienced that gospel ignited expulsive power of a new affection. That new affection was not heterosexuality, but Jesus, my Jesus, my friend and savior. And I was not converted out of homosexuality, I was converted out of unbelief. Friends, and, and we have all not believed in God. My friends, even as our sin is great, the power of the gospel is greater still. And this gospel is our only hope. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word, even a difficult word like this. Father, as we come to this text, we are confronted with our sinfulness, and then we recognize that all of us, all of us, have fallen short of your glory. We've not worshipped you as we ought. We've not loved you as we ought. We've not loved one another as we ought. Father, we pray now that you would search our hearts. We pray that you would bring your word to bear on our lives. Father, may your spirit work powerfully. Open our eyes to see your holiness. Open our eyes to see our sin. Humble us before you, Lord. Turn our hearts to you. Oh Father, are some of us here who, who cherish sins that we've not repented of. Father, we pray that you would not allow us to continue in sin, but that you would intervene by your mercy to turn us back to you. May may this moment, even now, be the moment that we repent and turn. Oh, Father, search our hearts in, in the quietness of this moment. Draw us to your Son by your grace. Help us, Father, for we need your help. We ask this because Jesus is loving, because He is merciful. We ask this in His name. Amen.